This morning we're going to be in Psalm 73. If you do not own a Bible or you don't own the translation that we preach from, which is the ESV, you can look in the chairs in front of you. You'll find those blue paperback Bibles. You can take those out, and that's actually our gift to you. And so if you do not own a Bible, we hope you'll take one of those. We also have some on the table uh, out in the narthex. And so please take that home, and we encourage you to read it. Well, a little bit of background on this message. Uh, When Charlie was planning this series on the Psalms and learning to pray the Psalms, he came to me and asked me for a few that I'd be interested in preaching. And I couldn't help but gravitate towards Psalm 73 and Psalm 88, which I'll be preaching from next week. And the reason for that is because kind of as I was saying in the introduction to our service this morning, we've kind of become preconditioned not to handle suffering well. And that's simply by nature of the world that we live in. We don't handle suffering well. And I think these two Psalms that we'll be looking at this week and then again next month are going to teach us something about what it means to pray through, something, through suffering, to gain wisdom through suffering, to learn more about God, and to grow in our own understanding of our faith. And so I really believe Psalm 73 is going to teach us this morning something about dealing with suffering. The Psalm, uh, Asaph, the author In this psalm, he really comes to terms with the realities of life as he's walking through a terribly difficult situation where he's wrestling with the promises of God during the afflictions of his life because he's bearing witness to the prosperity of the wicked and he is envious. And yet in the midst of his sorrow, the author, Asaph, he has this experience that's going to instruct us on how we can process and deal with our own hurts and our own pains. And so there's three things I want us to see together in Psalm 73 this morning, three things which I think are going to be an encouragement to us this morning. And those three things are turning to God in our suffering, experiencing God in our suffering, and the wisdom of God in suffering. So turning to God, experiencing God, and the wisdom of God in our suffering. So please join with me as we read uh, from Psalm 73, and please give the reading your careful attention as this is God's word. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, God's people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. 
If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, you have so much wisdom to give us in your word. And this morning we pray and we ask that the wisdom you give us would be how we can deal and process our sufferings and our pains and our afflictions well in the way that you would have us. Teach us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we were reading this psalm, you may have noticed that Psalm 73 both begins and ends with the word of praise. Did you notice that? And in verse 1, the psalmist says, what? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And at the end, he says, it's good for me to be near God, for he is my refuge. And while it is true that both verses speak of God's praises and God's goodness, We must not think that Asaph understands these two verses in the same way. We must not think that he understands God's goodness in the same way in both verses. For in verse 1, while he may believe in his mind that God is good to his people, it's a truth that remains outside of him. He hasn't really absorbed it yet. It hasn't gotten down to the depths of his soul as something that really resonates with him. It's kind of like how, you know, in high school, in our high school physics class, and we learned the equation force equals mass times acceleration, right? And we use the equation and we solve the problems and we do the homework and we say, yeah, I I believe this to be true. It's solving these problems, but it's not until you're in college and you're driving back to school from Thanksgiving break and you're driving your 1997 Dodge Stratus down the highway and you crash into the car in front of you and you get out and you say, ah, force equals mass times acceleration. I get it now. Speaking from experience, you see, what we believe to be true and the things we declare about God often needs to be experienced by us before we really get it. And this psalm tells us all about the experience that Asaph has in order to truly learn that God is good to his people. Because while he declares the goodness of God in verse 1, what does he say in verses 2 and 3? But as for me, my feet almost slipped. 
I was envious of the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, I think I know that God is good to his people, but is he good to me? I almost fell into spiritual destruction. I see the prosperity of the wicked around me and they're doing way better than I am. Could this mean that I am not one of God's people? Could this mean that maybe I'm not upright in heart? Because if I was, wouldn't I also be prospering? That's what Asaph is wondering. And you see, in these three opening verses, we find out so much of what true lament really is. I think when we hear the word lament, we often just sort of think of this kind of grieving or this sorrow over our circumstances. And that's true. That's part of lament. But real, authentic, biblical lament has this element of going before God and making our case before him. It's arguing with him. It's wrestling with him. It's entering before his throne as a prosecutor before a judge and saying, I don't get it. It's, as one author described it, as taking God's promises and throwing them back at him and saying, God, I am needy. I am thirsty. I am hungry. I am crushed in spirit. Why not apply your promises to me? Why won't you be good to me? It's making our case before God in prayer. Do you see prayer in this way? I think many of us, when we think of prayer, we think of it has to be something very proper. You know, like we're approaching English royalty or something. We got to put on our coats and our ties and talk in very proper language and very proper terms. Sort of put on our best, hide our emotions, hide how we're really feeling and appeal to the goodness inside of us, appeal to our own strengths. That's kind of silly, isn't it? See, what we learn from this psalm and what we learn from countless other psalms is that God desires that we bring our complaints, our sorrows, our griefs, our arguments, and we come before him. Do you see why Psalm 55 says to cast your burdens on the Lord? This is what Asaph is doing in this psalm. And this is one of the key ways that God meets us in the midst of our own suffering and provides us something better than we can possibly imagine. Because what is our natural tendency when we are afflicted? What is our natural tendency when we suffer? Start pointing fingers, right? We argue with others. You did this to me. My circumstances did this to me. How dare you? We get into fights and arguments with our friends and loved ones. We burn bridges with those whom we hold most dear. But God invites us to something more. When God brings us into a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, we now have a new outlet for our hurts and pains. We take them to him. We no longer need to take out our grief and our bitterness and our anger on others, but we can turn to him with our complaints, with our arguments, and with all of our pain and sorrow. Now, I want to be very clear about something. God permits us to wrestle with him in prayer, to bring our doubts to him in prayer, 
even to complain in our prayers. He can take it. He wants you to, do, to come to him in this way. But we must be very careful about how much we make these kinds of complaints public. Look with me at verse 15. Asaph says, If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. What does Asaph mean by this? Isn't it the case that when we complain, and when we go to others with our complaints, what are we looking for? Pity, right? We're looking to come to someone with our complaints and we want them to say, you know what? You're right. Right? That's what we want to hear. And so you see why it is so dangerous if we take our complaints about God, our complaints about the church, huh? And we make those things public in such a way that can become a stumbling block to others, that could tear down those who are weak in the faith, that can be a very dangerous thing, can't it? And so we must be careful about this fine line between being vulnerable and speaking about God in such a way that could destroy the faith of others. Professing Christians who seek to make arguments against God or against his church can often be far more dangerous to the faith than any atheistic or secular argument. And so we must be careful. We must be very careful. And so here's the point. Christians, we argue with God. We take our burdens to him. We take our complaints to God. He can take it. We argue with him. We wrestle with him and we say, why aren't your promises good to me? We make our case known. Skeptics, atheists, they argue with people. They point fingers. They blame burdens on others. They quarrel. They burn bridges. And at any time we find ourselves in a situation where we're pointing fingers, where we're quarreling, where we are burning bridges with our loved ones, we are not acting like a child of God because we are not going to him in prayer first and we are not taking our sufferings to him. This is exactly what we see Asaph doing in these first few verses. He's turning to God and he's making his case. He's arguing in prayer. And so for the next several verses, verses 4 through 15, Asaph voices the reality of his circumstances. He makes his case known to God. And so much of his trial and his pain and his affliction comes from this envy. It comes from envy of others. They are prospering. I am suffering. And the temptation in those moments is to say, ah, you know what? I'm going to chuck it out with this faith stuff. I'm going to be like them. Because if I was like them, then I would prosper too. This is the heart of what is meant by my feet almost slipped in verse 3. It's a downward spiral into spiritual destruction, into things like envy and temptation. After all, as he describes the wicked in verses 4 and 5, their bodies are fat and sleek. Now that's a description, isn't it? They're doing well. 
They're not in trouble like I am and like so many of us are. And so it seems like godliness is vanity. All in vain have I been pure. This is what Asaph says in verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I been pure because I'm stricken all the day long. What good is it to be godly if I suffer? You see how this goes back to verses 1 and 3, don't you? Or verses 1 to 3. I know God to be good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart, but I've been upright and I'm suffering. Therefore, that's a lie because godliness must be vanity. Is God really good to his people? Is God really good to his people? What might be an equivalent like New Testament verse for this? Romans 8:28, right? We know that all things work together for good for those who love him. What happens when things aren't working out for good? What happens when it seems like the whole world is turned upside down and we are in immense pain and suffering? How do you handle that? How do you handle that? I think most of us tend to handle our sufferings in one of two ways. On the one hand, many of us shut down and we roll over and we say, you know what, Uh, I guess this is just my lot in life. We cave into a kind of depression, a kind of self-pity, and we say, this is it for me. On the other extreme, many of us try and become strong and muscle our way through our suffering and through our circumstances, and we give into this kind of modern stoic mantra that says, be strong and forget about anyone who makes you feel weak. Strength is viewed as detachment. And, and an abandoning of emotion. And so the young millennial poet, Rupi Kaur, who I quoted at the beginning of your bulletin this morning, she has this quote where she's, um, her poetry, she's wrestling through uh, healing or a trying to heal from a past abusive relationship. And so that quote that I put in the bulletin this morning, she essentially says, I had a loss that took something from me. And while I used to be so emotional that I crumbled under any pressure, now I am so strong that I don't feel anything. And all I want is to soften again. You see how she captures how so many of us alternate from one extreme to the other in dealing with our suffering. Which extreme do you tend to go towards? Do you shut down, retreat, cave into self-pity? Or do you become strong and numb and sort of detach yourself from your loved ones? Regardless of where you find yourself, at either end of the spectrum, we don't actually deal with the suffering, do we? We don't actually deal with the pain, do we? We just mask it, hide it in different ways. We either fall victim to it or we numb ourselves to it. But what if there is a better way? What if there is a way that God invites us into in order to truly and properly handle our sufferings and our emotions? Look with me at verses 16 and 17, and this is the great turnaround, okay, of the psalm. This is the great experience that Asaph has where he experiences God in the midst of his suffering. 
Because where does Asaph find the hope and the wisdom that he needs to get through his trials? Where does he go? He goes into the sanctuary. And this isn't just any sanctuary. This is the Jerusalem temple. Okay, this is the religious focal point for the people of Israel. And what happens in the temple? Okay, this is the interactive portion of the sermon this morning. What happens in the temple? What's that? They discern their end. Okay, but what, what happens in the temple when he goes in there? What takes place? Sacrifice. Worship. Right? And so many of us, we think of the Jerusalem temple as it must have been this clean and neat and kind place. It was not a kind place. Okay? You walk in, it's like a regular butcher shop 24-7. Okay, goats and bulls, blood splattering everywhere, blood dripping down the altar, carcasses on fire and burning everywhere, people lined up with their animals ready to take their sacrifice to the altar, and all the while singing God's praises, praying to him aloud. That is not a kind experience. That is a vivid experience that captures all of the senses. And so Asaph walks into the temple And what does he see? God has made a way for his people. God has made a covenant with us. He loves his people. And it's in that moment where reality sets in. And the truths about God and his circumstances become known to him. And he is able to say, he is our God. We are his people He is good to us. We don't always have all the answers, but we know that we are loved. Now is when the truth about God that was once outside of Asaph, it sinks in and it becomes real to him in a new way. And that is because he has had an experience with God. This didn't happen through intellectual assent. It didn't happen through his own wisdom. It didn't happen because someone handed him a book of arguments about God. It came through an experience with the living God in worship. And I think many of us, you and I, we probably need to give more weight to our experiences than we want to admit then we need to give more weight to our experiences and what we want to do because so much of our faith, so much of what we believe about the world, it's driven by experience. It absolutely is. You know, a lot of people, they want to say, well, you know, I read this book that had these intellectual arguments and uh, it convinced me that Christianity wasn't true and so I stopped believing in it. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You had relationships with people that didn't share your faith. You probably went to a college and were in an environment where your faith was challenged. You had a romantic relationship with someone that you enjoyed who didn't share your faith. And all of those things for you created an experience that made not believing in God more plausible. So when you read the book, it was easier to believe it. But the same thing is true for becoming a Christian, for believing that Christianity is true. Very much of our faith is driven by experience. It's not just reading a book. 
about arguments about why Christianity is true. It's having relationships and friendships with weird Christian people. It's being prayed for and feeling a genuine love from people you barely know. It's getting invited into homes to share a meal with a group of people that can only be explained by the kinds of things Jesus said about loving others. Like Asaph, it's coming into a church and it's experiencing Christian worship. It's feeling compelled by watching others get baptized and take the Lord's Supper. It's hearing the promises of God preached from his word. It's beholding the sacrifice of Christ for sinners. And it's there, not through the blood of bulls and goats, but for the Christ who was crucified for people like you and me. And it's there where heaven meets earth and shatters our reality and light breaks in and we experience love and warmth and grace and truth. Do you know that kind of love this morning? Have you experienced the grace of God as it is offered to you in Jesus Christ, whose blood was shed for sinners and to bring them into a relationship with God? The kind of a relationship where we can turn to him on any day, at any hour, and bring our complaints and our laments and our arguments and our bitterness to him and be reminded of his great love for us. You see, because it's only in this kind of relationship with God where any of us, any of us can truly learn to handle and process our sufferings. It's only with God that we'll ever learn how to handle and process our suffering. Look, when troubles come our way, right? When we're suffering and we're envious of people around us, Our suffering is very real. It's very real. Our sorrows, our grief, our pain, it's very real. The emotion we feel, the hurt, that's real too. But if you allow those things to destroy you and lose all hope, if you allow those things to make you bitter and cynical, Or if you allow those things to make you argumentative and combative. Or if you allow those things to make you numb and shut down to emotions and to your loved ones. Listen, your suffering didn't do that. Your suffering didn't do those things. We do those things. We do those things. And that's because we're not processing suffering in the way that God says is best. That's why. That's why those things happen. And when we don't process our suffering the way God says is best, something happens to our hearts that is less than human. Something happens deep inside of us that makes us view the world, ourselves, and the people around us, not only in ways that is false, but it's also harmful. See, here's what we can learn from Asaph in Psalm 73. We will never handle our suffering well. We will never grow as we should until we learn to turn to God in our suffering and experience him. Because when we do so, he promises that we will get more of him and that we will become more human. 
we'll become more like Christ. Why? Because we'll gain wisdom. We'll gain wisdom about ourselves and we'll gain wisdom about the realities of this world. And this is the last thing I want us to see in verses 18 to 28, okay? The last thing I want us to see is gaining wisdom from God in our suffering. Do you notice what one of the most pronounced differences is between verses 1 to 17 and 18 to 28? It's small, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. In verses 1 to 17, God is spoken about in the third person. He's almost like a subject that Asaph talks about. But look what happens in verses 18 to 28. So much of 18 to 28, God becomes what? The second person. You. You put them in slippery places. I am always with you. And that's because after Asaph goes into the temple, God is not someone that he merely talks about. But God is someone that he has dealt with. And God became very near to him and very personal. And he learned things about God that he never knew before. And so when we learn to turn to God and experience him, he becomes very personal to us, doesn't he? His character and attributes, the promises of his word, they become real to us in new ways. This is the wisdom that he promises us. Do you see the wisdom that Asaph learned? Do you see how he learned the truth about his suffering? About the wicked? He remembers now their ultimate place is destruction. He knows that when he complained, even though he had the right to do so before God, he was brutish. He was ignorant. But more than that, more than he has ever known before, he knows what it means to be continually with God. He knows what it means to be sustained by God. Now he says, you hold my right hand. You guide me with counsel. Now he knows for certain, more than he's ever known before in his whole life, these marvelous truths that we love to talk about in verses 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. But how does he get there? How does he get to that praise? Through suffering, friends. Through suffering. It's very much like Lamentations 3, which we read at the beginning of our service this morning. Here's your homework for this week. Go home and read Lamentations 3 and ask yourself the question, how does the author get to great is thy faithfulness? How does the author get to your mercies are new every morning? The answer might shock you. I encourage you to read it. Neve and I experienced this firsthand last year. Um, Many of you know that we uh, just gave birth to little Felix, who's uh, just a few weeks old, and uh, he's such a joy. And he's a delight for us. And we've just been so uh, incredibly amazed at the love that we have for him and the privilege that God has given us to celebrate Felix and to be his parents. But we haven't always had joy 
in this. Last year in February, we suffered a miscarriage with our first child. And you know, it's one of those things that you never think it's going to happen to you until it happens to you. And uh, that was hard. That was a hard experience for us. And uh, incredibly painful. We wanted to be parents so bad. And little guy's heart just stopped beating. And I'll never remember that moment, finding out that his heart stopped beating, or her. We know we don't know the gender. I'll also never forget coming home and just sitting on the couch and just weeping, weeping. But I'll also never forget how we were able to turn to God in prayer and say, God, we did everything right. We prayed for this child. Neva was healthy. We did all of our appointments. And yet you still took our child from us. And we don't know why. We don't understand it. But we believe that your promises are still yes and amen even when we don't get it. And I think for Neva and I, that was a moment for both of us when we learned for the first time as Christians what it really means to trust God and to rely on him and to turn to him in the midst of incredible loss and suffering. And you know what? If we hadn't had that privilege, if we didn't know God, if we hadn't been able to turn to him in that way, Here's what I can guarantee to you what would have happened. I would have become stoic and strong and muscled my way through it. I would have ignored my emotions and become numb to it. I know I would have because that's how I handle things. Neva, on the other hand, she probably would have went to the other extreme. I just kind of rolled over and said, you know what? Bad things happen to me. This makes sense. And I can almost guarantee to you that if that had happened, it would have torn our marriage apart. Absolutely it would have. It would have rocked our world and torn us apart. And yet God met us and he was near to us and he sustained us. And even though we still don't have answers, we drew nearer to him and nearer to each other. You see, here's my point. If you were, let's say, abandoned by one of your parents at a young age, maybe you lost a parent to incredible tragedy or an accident, how will you ever really know what it means for God to be father to the fatherless, as it says in Psalm 68, unless you bring to him your pain and your hurt? If you were a victim of abuse, which I know is horrific and I can't fathom it and processing that is incredibly painful, but how will you know that God's mercies are truly new every morning as Lamentations 3 says unless you experience those mercies for yourself? I think we've seen that this last week in the public sphere with Rachel Denhollander, haven't we? And through incredible pain, by pressing into her Savior, look at how God has used her to proclaim the gospel to the world, to proclaim forgiveness, and to be an incredible tool of mercy 
in his hand through horrific circumstances. If you're someone who's going through a season of depression or anxiety, something I know all too well, how will you know what it means for God to be near to the brokenhearted as we read unless you turn to him? Friends, our afflictions, our sufferings, our trials, they are the best books about God in our libraries. But we must read them. We can't leave them on the shelf and push them away. They're no good to us there. We must turn to our sufferings and bring them before God and say, God, meet me here. Apply your promises to me. Won't you be near to me? Turn to Jesus Christ and experience his grace. He will meet you there and you will gain a kind of personal wisdom that will sustain you through life's darkest hours. And then you will be able to say, just like Asaph, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we do not know how to handle suffering well. And just as Asaph says in Psalm 73, trying to understand our sufferings and our afflictions by ourselves is a wearisome task. But when we turn to you and experience you, you meet us and you draw near to us and you reveal the truth to us about ourselves, about others, and about your deep, deep love for us. I pray for those who are weary this morning that you would meet them as they draw near to you. And I pray for those who may not know you this morning, that they would see that coming to Christ means that they can be in a relationship with you where they don't need to take out their burdens on others or they don't need to deal with it by themselves, but they can come to the God of the universe who made them and knows them. Be near to us, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.